Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. As you well know, there are many doctrines under theology. Theology is the study of God. Pneumatology is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Harmatology is the doctrine of sin. Eschatology, what we're studying right now is the study of end times. We've been in a series on eschatology, the study of the last things. Eschatos means last. So that's where we are trying to wrap up this series before Christmas. And we've looked at a number of things. We've looked at the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15. We've looked at the seven-year tribulation described in the Bible, particularly in the book of Daniel. Daniel's called the cornerstone of all biblical prophecy. So we looked at the 490 years that were given to Israel, the 70 weeks as they're called. That deals with the tribulation, the last seven years. We looked at the Antichrist. We looked at the second coming of Christ. And in my absence, Pastor Zach dealt with the two resurrections, the resurrection unto life, which is actually in several phases starting with Christ and then the rapture and at the end of the tribulation and then the resurrection unto death. Today we're looking at the millennial kingdom. We'll get into that right now. In 1516, Sir Thomas More wrote a book, you've heard of it, called Utopia. Now it's a part of our English language. It was a novel describing a non-existent ideal society It was on a fictional island out in the Atlantic Ocean. Of course, there is no utopia. There was no utopia. But it tells you that there is a deep longing within the human psyche, maybe we would say, in the human heart, for a society that is perfect. And if not perfect, at least one that is just. Because we look around and we see injustice and we say, it's got to get better than this. And it will. People tend to think, well, if we just had the right government or the right government officials, things would be better. Or if we just had the right education for people or the right medicine to treat the diseases or the right technology. Or if people would just love one another, we could have world peace. Really? Could we? Well, the fact of the matter is, not only does our heart kind of pull us towards a desire towards having a utopia, a perfect society. But as Bible believers, we know that someday we will have a perfect society. Not because man ushers it in. It's not going to be the result of men, but it will come to pass someday, not because of depraved human being. They can't do anything about it, but because God will bring it to earth, the Bible tells us. And that's called the millennial kingdom. We're going to look at that idea today. And not only is it a longing in our heart, we're told to pray for God's kingdom to come. So why don't you stand with me? They're going to put up on the screen from Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer. So let's say the Lord's Prayer together because twice the kingdom is mentioned in this prayer that Jesus taught his disciples and us to pray. So let's say it together. After this manner, therefore, pray ye. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, there it is, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. 
And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So twice in the Lord's Prayer, it mentions our desire for the kingdom and to pray for the kingdom. So we long for it. We're to be praying for the kingdom, and someday it will come. We're looking at the millennial reign of Christ, which is the last age of human history before eternity begins. Now, conservative theologians and Unger's dating of the Bible puts the earth right now at about 6,000 years old. Matter of fact, he puts the beginning, the creation, at 4004 B.C. And we know it was about 1,000 years until the flood. So if you track with me, the first 1,000 years was the antediluvian world. And people lived a long time. Methuselah lived 969 years. Of course, there was a canopy over the earth. The genetic breakdown hadn't affected society. Sin had just been introduced into the world, you know, a thousand years earlier. So people lived a long time. 4,000 is the date that most Bible scholars put creation at. 3,000 is about the date of the flood. Right after that, about 500 years where we place Job. He was the earliest of the patriarchs, about 2500 B.C. About 2000 B.C., we know Abraham lived. He's the father of the Jewish nation. 1500 B.C. was Joseph, and that's when the children of Israel were led out of Egypt. 1000 B.C. is when David, the first real king, Saul was the first king, but the first king that delighted God ruled over Israel. 500 B.C. is when they went into captivity, and then there's the 400 silent years. 500 B.C. is when Israel went into the Babylonian captivity. So we've had about 4,000 years before the time of Christ, 2,000 years after the time of Christ. And many people say with the 1,000-year reign, that makes 7,000 years the age of perfection, the number of perfection. That's speculation. We don't know when the millennium will come. We don't know when the rapture is going to occur. Uh, The Bible doesn't tell us the day nor the hour. But we know after the tribulation, the millennial kingdom begins. We're looking at the millennial kingdom, by the way, Millennium comes from the Latin word mil or mille, which means a thousand, annum, which means a year. So a thousand years, millennium. You've been given a chart there in your bulletin that helps explain the millennial kingdom. There's three different views on the millennial kingdom. We take the pre-mill position as a dispensational view of the kingdom, the millennial kingdom. That's at the top of the page, the church age. Then we know the rapture takes place. Christ doesn't come to the earth. He appears in the sky and calls us up hither. Believers are translated, transformed, and resurrected if they died during the church age and have been buried. During that time in the tribulation when the world is in chaos, we're receiving our rewards at the judgment seat of Christ We're enjoying the marriage supper of the Lamb, the Bible tells us, while the earth is undergoing a great time of tribulation. That lasts seven years. Then the Lord returns. That's called technically the second coming. When the Lord comes down, touches down on the Mount of Olives there in Jerusalem, believers come with him and he judges the nations. That's called Armageddon, the nations that are rising up to destroy Israel and to fight against God. 
And then he establishes the millennial kingdom. At the end of that thousand years, then the resurrection of the dead, the doom, the lost takes place. The great white throne judgment, hence the chair there, the great white throne judgment takes place. And then we go into the eternal state. Now, there are other groups that parse the scriptures a little bit differently. Post-millennialism, say that real fast, post-millennialism, Christ comes after the millennium, they believe. This view is hardly accepted anymore at all. But during the great revivals that took place in America, Dr. Bob Jones and Billy Sunday and, and Ham and all the others that were preaching, tens of thousands of people were getting saved. They believed that everybody on earth was going to get saved. There was going to be revival that would sweep not through America, but throughout the world. And then the Lord would come back after everybody was saved and his kingdom was established. The Lord would come back and eternity would begin. So you could see that in that second one. There are some that still believe in amillennialism. And that ah means no. They're saying we don't believe in a millennial kingdom. Or they spiritualize it, that Christ is reigning from heaven. They don't believe he's going to reign on earth. That view is pretty similar, as you see on the chart, to post-millennialism. Amillennialism basically spiritualizes the kingdom and makes it that Jesus is ruling. He's ruling in our heart. He's ruling from heaven, but he's never going to rule on earth. As dispensationalists, we take a literal approach to Scripture. That's the main thing about dispensationalists. We take a literal approach to Scripture. We don't spiritualize prophecy, and as they tend to do, many will spiritualize creation week. They say, well, it wasn't a literal week. You know, those are eons or those are ages. So amillennials tend to spiritualize and allegorize both creation and prophecy. We say, no, no, God meant what he said. Matter of fact, in this passage of Scripture, he says six times 1,000 years. So we take it literally when God says 1,000 years, he means 1,000 years. We take God at his word. We believe we should be taken literally from Genesis to Revelation. By the way, that does not mean that we don't recognize that Scripture sometimes uses poetical or maybe we would even say allegorical language, such as Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me in green pastures. That doesn't mean he becomes a literal shepherd and we become sheep and we eat grass and, and we drink by a still water. Obviously, David is using poetical language. So when you come to a poetical passage, we interpret it that way. Or when you come to a symbolic passage, we interpret it that way. When Jesus said, I am the door, I am the vine, I am the light, he didn't become a no door swinging on hinges. He didn't become a literal vine. He didn't become a candle. He was symbolizing that if you want eternal life, you have to enter into eternal life through Jesus Christ. That he is the light that illumines our minds in a very dark world and gives us the truth. He is the vine that allows us as branches to bear fruit. So he's using symbolism. We all get that. But when it comes to the stock reading of Scripture, we take a literal approach. Otherwise, you become the arbitrator of Scripture. You become the decider of what you want it to mean. So we'll take the literal approach. 
let's look at the basic elements of the millennial kingdom. And there's a lot more that could be said, obviously. We're trying to condense things down into a single message on these different topics. First of all, there's three things I want you to notice. First of all, the devil will be restrained. The devil will be restrained. You got your Bibles open to Revelation chapter 20. Allow me to read. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit. And a great chain was in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil. He's got three names right there. Dragon, serpent, devil, and Satan, four names, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should not deceive the nations no more, that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones and they that sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, probably primarily martyred saints of the tribulation. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their forehead or on their hand. And they lived and reigned with Christ, there it is again, a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years was finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him, there it is again, a thousand years. The first thing I want you to notice is the devil will be restrained. Under God's authority, Satan is bound and cast into hell. That abyss of immeasurable depth full of demons, lost souls, and utter darkness, and torturous flames. Those are some of the descriptions of the lake of fire or of hell. Revelation 19, which we read a few moments ago, describes the second coming of Christ. When all the nations are getting ready to descend upon Israel to destroy the people of Israel, and the Lord comes back, and the Bible tells us he's riding on a white horse, and his robes are dipped in blood because he shed his blood, and he's already the victor. By dying on the cross, he conquered sin, he defeated the devil, and so his robe is dipped in blood. And it also has emblazed upon it, King of kings and Lord of lords. As he appears upon the scene there at the battle of, of Armageddon, he destroys the armies that Satan has assembled. And he does it not because he unsheaths his sword or we unsheath our swords if we have them, but by the word of his mouth, the very word that created the worlds, the very word that created the universe and created mankind, by the word of his mouth, he destroys them. Now, the Bible says there is such destruction, so many lives lost, that the carrion Birds, the vultures, the birds that eat human flesh assemble together and they gorge themselves on the flesh of the soldiers. Chapter 20, Jesus establishes kingdom, as we've read, for a thousand years. And he rules with a rod of iron. Did you notice that? Of course, a shepherd has a rod and he has a hook. The rod was to beat away any carnivorous animals, a bear or a lion or tiger or whatever. But he rules with a rod of iron. So he's a shepherd to those of us who are his sheep. 
It's a source of comfort to those of us who know the Lord. He is our good shepherd, but he makes no quarters. He gives no quarters to those that would resist his righteous rule, those that are alive during the millennial reign who would seek to rebel against God will find no quarters, find no place. Now, stop and think with me. This is the main idea that I want to get across in this first point. Can you imagine where a world where Satan has no presence, he has no influence? Can you imagine a world like that? Satan is the one, the Bible says, who blinds the minds of unbelievers, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. You wonder why people don't come to Christ? Because their minds are blinded, the Bible says. And unless the light of the gospel shines into them, unless we speak the gospel to them and God gives them illumination, their minds are blinded. They can't comprehend it. They don't get it. He has blinded the minds of unbelievers, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He is the one who works in the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2.2. 2. So the disobedience that goes on around the world, the sin, the carnage, the evil, the wickedness, he is at work making that happen. He works in the sons of disobedience. Yes, Satan is the God of this world, the Bible says. In other words, he is manipulating this world. He has got delegated authority from God to preside over the powers of this world. He is the God of this world, influencing individuals, governmental leaders, and governments. And the Bible says he is the murderous father of lies because he was a liar from the beginning, Jesus said. He is the murderous father of lies. Satan inspires others to kill and destroy, and he's done that all through history. Case in point, Planned Parenthood that kills millions of children. Maybe Margaret Sanger came up with the idea, she said, to eliminate the inferior races, the black race. She was trying to eliminate the black race from America, and she started Planned Parenthood, but Satan was behind it. The millions and millions have been killed. Satan was behind that and he's still behind it because he lives to kill and destroy. People commit suicide. People take their lives in all kinds of ways. That's really Satan that is behind it. Not just in individual cases, but in the big world scene, he's at work down through history. Genghis Khan. The Mongolian warlord ruled over the largest empire the world has ever known, larger than the USSR, larger than Great Britain's dominion around the world. He ruled over the largest dominion in human history. Historians estimate he killed 40 million people in the 13th century. 11% of the world population was killed by Genghis Khan. Can you imagine that? 11% of the world population was killed by Genghis Khan. Stalin killed approximately 9 million people, bringing in his Marxist government. Everywhere a Marxist government has been established is caused widespread poverty, widespread death, and in his case, widespread starvation both there and in China. Nine million people killed by Stalin establishing the Marxist government. Hitler was responsible for 11 million deaths. What we know is the Holocaust. 
Pol Pot, I've been to Cambodia. Pol Pot killed one-third of the population in Cambodia. I saw the Towers of Skulls. One-third of the population, anybody that had a high school degree or above, was killed. They were shot. Matter of fact, they were running out of bullets, so they clubbed them to death. Babies were dashed against the trees. We saw the very trees. One-third of the population of Cambodia. Mount Zedong, in his great leap forward, as it was called, bringing China into the new age, he outdid them all. Mount Zedong killed 45 million Chinese people. And all of these are conservative estimates. 45 million. So he killed more than Stalin and Hitler and Pol Pot. Just in those events right there, there's 100 million people that were killed by those handful of leaders. And that's just a handful of them. Not talking about the African leaders and other Asian leaders and all down through time. Can you imagine if Satan is removed from the world scene and he's no longer inspiring death and murder for a thousand years, Satan's influence will be absent from the world. That by itself, that in itself will make this period of human history unique from any other dispensation of time. Imagine Imagine a world where Satan has no influence or presence. The first thing, Satan's influence is restrained because he is placed in hell. Second, I want you to notice the earth will be restored. Earth will be restored. The millennium will be a time of tremendous environmental and societal transformation. Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 and 2. And by the way, Isaiah and Zechariah have a lot to say about the millennial kingdom. Isaiah 35, 1 and 2 tell us that the desert will blossom and become very prosperous and productive. The effects of the fall are reversed. Eden is restored to the earth once again. And the predatory instinct of carnivorous animals no longer exists no longer exists. Listen to what the Bible says. There will be no need. (laughs) This is not what the Bible says. This is what I'm saying. (laughs) There will be no need to go to the zoo to see the so-called wild animals. Listen, Isaiah 11 verse 6. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. Look at that verse. Yes, when the wolf lies down with the lamb, it's because he wants to consume him. Or when the leopard lies down with the young goat or the calf, it's because they want to get him inside their mouth. And all of these, and and by the way, instead of the child running away from these animals, the, the little child leads them along like he would a puppy. The carnivorous instinct of the animals, like the world in Eden, pre-Diluvian world, is restored. The animals are no longer to be feared, the carnivorous animals. Plus, what man has always longed for, long life, will now be the norm. Listen to what the Bible says. I'm reading from Isaiah 65, verse 20. And I'm reading in, in the NIV because it makes it very clear. Never again will there be in it 
the kingdom, an infant who lives but a few days. Now, many of us here have had an infant who've died after a few days or a few months. Never will there again be an infant who lives but a few days. Or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. You die at a hundred, that's a tragedy. That's like a child dying, he says. And the one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. Because long life is the norm. There's a thousand-year millennium, and some people will live all the way through the millennial kingdom in their natural body. Physical infirmities and health concerns will be eradicated. Can you imagine that? Our infirmities, our health concerns are all eradicated. There will be no need for canes or crutches or walkers or joint replacement or hearing aids. Blindness won't exist. Deafness won't exist. won't be found. Our food will be delicious and nutritious and a delivery system for sustaining life long-term, just like in the Garden of Eden. They had to keep eating from the tree of life to keep living. And in heaven, we eat from the tree of life that's restored. But this is the millennial kingdom. There will be no more fear. You don't have to worry about it dark straight. No fear, no sorrow. People will be filled with happiness and expressions of joy will be everywhere. And we're going to run out of time, so I'll just give you the references. Isaiah 35, verses 5 through 8. Isaiah 29, verse 18. And Isaiah 33, verse 24. Well, it talks about the joy, the happiness, the excitement, the enthusiasm of youth that will be everywhere in the millennial kingdom because society has been made right. Our bodies have been made right. The Lord is on the throne. Hatred and anger and war will be no more. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 4 says, He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares. Going to be some agriculture going on. Instead of warfare, there will be agriculture. You know, here in America, we have the war college and, and uh, leading individuals are invited to come to the war college and study war. The war college will be no more. Maybe there'll be an agricultural college, you know, Texas A&M and, you know, et cetera. But they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. It's a time of unbelievable peace, far surpassing the Pax Romana that Rome thought they had established. Well, there's much more to be said, but the earth will be restored. It'll be blissful environment. Third and finally, the saints will be reigning with Christ, but the saints will be reigning. Jesus says that multiple times. We see it in our text here today. Spiritual life in the millennial kingdom will be unlike anything we have ever experienced. Living daily and personally and physically in the presence of Jesus Christ. He's on the throne, but he's out mixing with his subjects, 
Can you imagine living in the presence of Jesus Christ? And he's sitting on the Davidic throne, the Bible tells us, multiple times. He's ruling from the throne room of David's throne. What an enormous impact that will have on the life of believers. The Bible says in Isaiah eleven nine, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's pretty comprehensive. Waters cover the sea, yeah. The knowledge of the Lord will cover the entire earth. We won't have, the Bible says we won't have to come up to someone and say, know the Lord. In other words, we won't have to come up to someone and witness to them and share the gospel because we all will know the Lord. The knowledge of the Lord will be like the waters that cover the sea. The knowledge and worship of Christ will be global, unimpeded, unhindered. Our worship now, if you stop and think about it, as I have this past week, our worship now is always scheduled, it's often mechanical. And sometimes it's uninspiring. That will end. You know, only on a few occasions in my life, only on a few occasions in my life have I experienced what I consider the Spirit of God being in complete control of a service, being in complete control and blessing a service. Only a, a couple of times in my entire life. And by the way, I wasn't the one leading the service and I wasn't the one preaching. I was a spectator. I was a worshiper. And I remember thinking, oh, I don't want this to ever end. I just, I just want this to continue on. I, 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 it was electrifying but weighty. It was joyful but sobering. And I didn't want it to end. I felt like heaven had come down. I wanted to bottle it up for future experiences. Somehow, I think that will be a regular day in the millennial kingdom because we're unhindered, unimpeded by Satan, by our own sinful thoughts. We have our glorified body, and we're worshiping the Lord perfectly. The promises of the Davidic kingdom the Davidic covenant, you know, there are a number of covenants. Abrahamic covenant, they're fulfilled. Of course, there is the Mosaic covenant, the Noahic covenant, and the Davidic covenant. And in the Davidic covenant, similar to the Abrahamic covenant, God promises Abraham that he'll have a seed like the sand of the seashore. They will occupy the land that we call Israel, except the borders are greatly expanded. And the Davidic covenant deals with how he's going to reign and rule over the peoples of the earth. He's promised that to David's descendant, which we, of course, know is Jesus Christ. So the promises of the Davidic covenant will be finalized in Christ. Reign as he promised through the angel to marry his earthly mother. Gabriel said to Mary about her son Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Luke 1, 32 and 33. So all of the Davidic promises to Israel that they would reign with Jesus Christ will be fulfilled on earth. We don't explain those away. We don't excuse those away. They will be fulfilled. For Israel, the new covenant will be in full effect bringing to fruition 
the conditions promised in the passages such as Isaiah 59, Jeremiah 31 and 32, Ezekiel 16, Ezekiel 37, all dealing with the promises that God made in the covenant to Israel and their descendants. But more than that, the Bible states that we as church-age saints will rule with Christ. Look again at verse 4. And I saw thrones, plural. This is the Davidic throne that Jesus sits upon. But there's other thrones. I saw thrones and they that sat upon them. And judgment was committed to them. So assignments were given to them to rule and to reign. And judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness for Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast nor his image and had not received his mark on their forehead or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ, those church-age saints. They lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And this is not the only passage that deals with that. Of course, Jesus spoke of that. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul did as well. 1 Corinthians 6, 2 and 3, Paul says that believers shall judge the world even judging the angels. Believers will judge the world, including angels. Remember in Revelation 19, Jesus returns. The battle of Armageddon before the millennial kingdom starts and he wipes out the armies that were in rebellion against him and seeking to destroy Israel and there's a great horde of birds that consume their flesh but not all the earth's population is a part of the army and not all of the earth's population is in rebellion against God the bible tells us that there are two witnesses in Jerusalem that proclaim the gospel and many believe. There's 144,000 Jewish evangelists, 12,000 from every tribe that go throughout the world proclaiming the gospel. There's an angel that flies over the head and proclaims the gospel. The Bible says that there is a great harvest of souls, an uncountable number that are in heaven as a result of that. Some of them accept Christ. They die because they don't receive the mark of the beast. But many of them do not die. They accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. They're not wiped out at the Battle of Armageddon. They go into the millennial kingdom in their natural bodies. They go into the millennial kingdom. That's why some do die. Those that die at 100, it's like a mere child. Those that only live to be in their hundreds seem like they're accursed. They go into the millennial kingdom in their natural bodies. And the saints will be ruling over them. Of course, remember, society conditions, the environmental conditions, cultural conditions are perfect. So people live a long time. They're healthy. They have large families. They bear many children. Can you imagine the population in the millennial kingdom? Is it mushrooms over a thousand years? But yes, some of those children that are born over that thousand-year period of time, they follow Jesus Christ. They don't rebel against him because he's ruling with a rod of iron. But what happens at the end of the millennial kingdom? Satan is loosed from hell for a short period of time, the Bible says, and he foments a rebellion. 
Yes, there are lost people that are born. All the ones that go into the millennial kingdom are saved, but they have children over that thousand-year period of time. And many of them, they go along with the program, but they're lost and they're rebels in their heart. And in every single dispensation, whether it be Eden, or whether it be the patriarchal period, or whether it be under the law, or the church age, or the tribulation period, or in the millennial kingdom, the problem is always the same. It's not our environment. It's not even our rulers. It's the human heart. Because in the millennial kingdom, everything is perfect. The rulers on down. But the human heart is desperately wicked and deceitful beyond imagination. And so there is a rebellion against Jesus Christ fomented when Satan is loose from hell, the Bible says, and God judges those individuals. Of course, during that period of time, because lifespans are increased and the health problems are eradicated, there's very little difference, I would think, between those who are living in their glorified bodies and those who are living in their natural bodies. But the Bible tells us that we will rule and reign with Christ. How is that determined? How does that work? Well, Jesus mentions it several times, as well as Paul and the other writers of the New Testament. How we live now determines how we rule then. In Luke chapter 19, verses 15 through 27, Jesus addressed this very idea with the parable of servants. One was given 10 coins and another five coins and one one coin and the king goes away. And the one with 10 invests it. He works hard. And the king comes back and he says, I'll give you another 10. You will be ruler over 10 cities. The one that took his five and invested it well, he says, you'll rule over five cities. And the one that says, I stuck it in the ground. I I didn't do anything with it. He says, you're going to face judgment. It's a story that has a meaning. It's a parable that tells us, as Jesus talks about the future, that our time right here on earth is very important. It's important because this is the only opportunity we have to be saved. But it's important for us who are saved and believers because this is determining our future reward. This is determining our reward in the kingdom and what follows the kingdom, the eternal state, which we'll come to in a couple of weeks. Let me wrap up here. Talking about the, the millennial kingdom, let me give you two thoughts as we conclude. Number one, anticipate the future. Don't dread it. Anticipate the future. We see things going on in our world, whether it be COVID or what's going on in our government or the many of the things in government, the deep state or uh, the various things that are going on, and we dread what the future holds. Anticipate the future. Don't dread it. There is a better world coming one that is blissful beyond our imagination, one beyond what Thomas More could write in Utopia. It is a blissful world that is coming. Hang on, take hope, be encouraged in your difficulties because God will set everything right someday. Don't fret. He's in charge and he's in control. So number one, anticipate the future. Number two, invest wisely. Invest wisely. Don't waste your life. As I said a moment ago, you have a narrow window of time called life on terra firma on this planet. 
you got a narrow window of time, and what you do now determines how you will reign in the future. You've heard me say, what we do today matters in eternity, and it's true. What we do today, what we do tomorrow, what we do the following week matters in eternity. It matters with our rewards. It matters with our reign. So earn spiritual rewards now that will become a reality during the millennial kingdom and in eternity. Don't get sidetracked with lesser things. Don't get sidetracked with lesser things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have a a plan, and everything is moving along exactly according to your plan. There are no hiccups, no speed bumps, no problems that are not part of your eternal plan. And so we surrender ourselves to you. And Lord, help us not to fret, help us not to worry, wring our hands. And think that things are out of control because they're not. We know that. And that you're bringing human history to a conclusion. And that last epic period is the millennial kingdom. And Lord, we want to rule and reign with you because we lived and made a difference in this life. Help us not to lose sight of eternity. So, Lord, we commit ourselves to you. If there's someone here today that doesn't know you as Savior, may today be the day that they trust you. May they seek myself or one of our staff or one of our men and women out and allow us to show them from the Bible how to be saved so they can know that they're on their way to heaven. And for those of us who are saved, many have been saved for decades. Lord, help us to invest in eternity. Help us to see that you're a just rewarder of every sacrifice, of every commitment that we make that will not go unnoticed. So help us to live for you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.